Hey, so uh, you have finally achieved my level of fame and success. You've got a book adapted for screen. Does it count? Because it's the first book of a series that is 10 books away from the one I wrote. That's true. But you worked on it. I did work on it. Yeah. I am a consulting producer. I was actually kind of surprised. I thought I would be buried in the end credits. And I'm in the front credits. You're in the front credits. I was very pleased to see you on I'm the least important person in the front credits, (laughs) which you can tell by my name happening. And then they go to the special people, right? Because you Mm -hmm. in credits, it's like the most special people go first. But the people who are deserved go first, but can't get first in this go last yeah right this is like when you get your oscar winner to play thor's dad and things like that role so i'm right before those people this was basically my experience with serial killer Mm -hmm. and i actually like this i think it is a valuable thing to go through because i wrote this book Mm -hmm. and then we spent years turning it into a movie and then it was a movie and then like at the very end of the credits Mm -hmm. like after all of the little union symbols scroll by or whatever those are, it says, based on the novel by Dan Wells. And then it goes black, and that's the very Ooh, end. So you got the you got that credit mm-hmm. on the movie. Which is kind of prestigious. Yeah. But also, it was a nice humbling thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no one was out there shouting from the rooftops, guess what? We finally made a Dan Wells movie. They made their own movie. Mm-hmm. And I got a little credit at the end of it. And that's mm-hmm. a very nice, like, you know, right. know where you are kind of situation. It is interesting because we had different experiences with ours because you were, I would say, much more involved than I am. in the I, Wheel of I was Time. pretty heavily involved. My involvement in the Wheel of Time is centered around two things. First off, I read all the scripts mm-hmm. and I give feedback directly to the showrunner. Okay. Um, whose name is Rafe, and he is amazing. Really great writer. He was on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for a long time and then is the the head of this thing. And he listens to me, and we talk about it, and I try to, I try to prepare him for what the Wheel of Time fandom will mm-hmm. say, book fandom, about certain things he's doing in that's, the movies. That's got to be a super important role because mm-hmm. I would assume that a TV writer is not prepared for that kind yeah, of Yeah, I mean Rafe is actually of. pretty decent. There's there's things that he's not quite aware of, but I mean he he picked this up because he was a fan of the books. Yeah, that's true. Legit fan of the books. So mm-hmm. he knows a little bit about book culture and things like that. But I lived it for five to seven years being just in the limelight with regards to the series. And so there's a lot of things about the series that I know that I can tell him about. Then I just give him my structural, as a writer, sort of, here's what I would do. Here's what I like, what I don't like. Wheel of Time notwithstanding. And so it's kind of two-prong. It's like, Mm -hmm. here's what I think is most true to Wheel of Time in places where I think you're in some dangerous areas. And here's where, narratively, I think the story can be better. And then the other big hat I'm wearing is they put my name in the credits I think in the eyes of everyone above Rafe, my job is them to be able to say, huh, huh, look, he's involved, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is a really you're, important You're the thing. figurehead. Yeah. I mean, Harriet's the real figurehead, but Harriet is in her 80s now, mm-hmm. and Harriet is not going to be 
accessible in the way that I am. And so she's also, by the way, a consulting producer. So our names are both in the credits. And I actually went to Harriet before and said, are you okay with me being a producer on this? Because there's mm-hmm. a boundary there that I want to be careful not to cross because the Wheel of Time is not Brandon Sanderson's. Yeah. The Wheel of Time is Robert Jordan's. And I helped out, did a lot of helping out in the end of the series, but mm-hmm. it's not mine. And I never want to imply that it is, but yeah. those are kind of my role. So they did a lot of B-roll filming of me here and in Prague when we went there of just kind of for behind the scenes sort of making of stuff. And they asked me to publicize and things like that. But interestingly, my contract does not have non-disparagement. I am allowed to say whatever I want about the show in any way. That is interesting. I generally like to respect what people are doing. And I happen Mm -hmm. to really like what they're doing with the Wheel of Time. But I am allowed to say I hate it if I do. (laughs) If you do. In fact, I warned Rafe ahead of time. I'm like, if you bring me on, this is one of the things. I will need to be able to tell it straight to the Wheel of Time fans. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he said, I'm okay with that. So, mm-hmm. well, and that's, I think, also a key part of your role is kind of fan liaison mm. in a way. You know, they want to have somebody there who can, you know, be a symbol, even if nothing else, a symbol mm-hmm. to the fans that look, we know who you are and we respect you and we're making this show for you. Right. Even while at the same time, you know, and We should do a podcast about this at some point. The Mm. differences in scale between book industry and TV industry are such that while, yes, they are definitely tipping their hats to hardcore fans, Mm -hmm. they have to appeal to people who have never read the books before or the show will die. Yeah. You can't survive only on a book's fandom for most shows. There are some rare exceptions. I mean, Harry Potter had enough readers that Harry Potter, the movies, could be successful with only people who have read Harry Potter. Yeah. But for the vast majority of books, even something very successful as a book series, you need to have a larger audience. Otherwise, the budgets for these things are so big that you can't make your money back. Yeah. Well, and my big worry, because you do, I think you have to appeal to the mm non-fans, but- Ideally, you're going to have the fans as well. Yes. And my big worry with any adaptation, and I'm very Mm -hmm. worried about this with Wheel of Time as well, is that the hardcore fans are going to whine so much about the things that have been changed and about the imperfections Mm -hmm. that they're going to scuttle their one best chance to ever get an adaptation. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, I don't want them to feel like they have to not express what they want, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're allowed to dislike a piece of art and the Wheel of Time and these things that get adapted are so beloved. And we have seen so many times that producers or writers, mostly I'm gonna say the producers, have Mm -hmm. just ignored the soul of a property that, yes, I, I would say I'm not worried about that. The reason I'm not worried about that is twofold. Number one, it didn't happen to Lord of the Rings. And a lot of people who weren't, you know, back in the day in the trenches of World (laughs) War Fellowship of the Ring, the internet was really mad about Fellowship of the Ring. They did not like the budding, very new internet. The changes, you know. There were a lot of changes that people were super upset about. And you're right, 20 years ago now, we forget 
like having Arwen instead of Glorfindel yes. pissed off the entire world. It did. Cutting out Tom Bombadil, even though mm-hmm. it was a really, really good decision, it yeah. made everyone angry. Yeah. Even like things that are iconic now, like Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn. Mm-hmm. Some people really hated Viggo Mortensen. Yeah. As Aragorn, originally, he wasn't kingly enough, right? They were leaning into the scroungy, scrappy, dirty ranger rather than the, this man is a king biding his time until he can seize, you know, what is owed to him or whatever Mm. and these sorts of things. And you know what? Peter Jackson made and his team, I should say, Mm. made a fantastic piece of media that stayed true to the soul of the books, but in not every aspect, right? Like yeah. they picked the part of the books that they felt they could adapt and they did a really good job and it has stood the test of time. So if you do that, I think that you're in a good spot. And it's interesting. It's made me think a lot about adaptation working on this because when yeah. I got the first scripts, if you guys have not watched Wheel of Time, I would recommend you go watch them. I think they are very good, the episodes. I also love them. But when I got the first two scripts and I read them, I sat and thought for a long time because adaptations, I've now come to come to understand, come to kind of, come to kind of, (laughs) I have now come to understand, seem to fit into two general groups with a spectrum between. Okay. And this is the faithful adaptation on one hand, the we're going to try to scene by scene remake this. This is the Harry Potter one Harry school Potter of adaptation. Harry Potter one school of adaptation. Yeah. Game of Thrones early seasons was trying this. That's true. That doesn't mean you don't add things or take things away. But the sole idea is we're going to try to, to adapt recreate this. Recreate Yes. We're going to recreate this. And then there's the other school all the way on the side, which is the, I read this thing and I'm inspired by it. And I'm going to go make another thing that is inspired by it. This is your Shining. Mm-hmm school of storytelling and wheel of time is like right here if this is the halfway point it's 75 percent or maybe 50 percent between the two poles it is rafe saying all right i feel like i cannot adapt the wheel of time to the screen in a way that is going to convey what's in the books and so instead i'm going to try to do my best to bring the same emotional experience to people Mm -hmm. through using very few of the original scenes he does try to put them in when he can and lines of dialogue where he can, but that's not his guiding motif. He's not sitting, his team's not sitting and, and taking this chapter and say, how do we adapt this chapter? It's how do we adapt this character's arc and translate it entirely to a cinematic experience, mm-hmm. feeling like if we don't have to have any of the same touchstones, if we don't need to, as long as that gives the same emotional yeah. feel to who this character is. Something that will appeal to people that will tell the story, mm-hmm. but... You know, almost in like a a Robin Hood kind of way. Yeah. You know, we've heard the story of Robin Hood so many times that there is like an Ur Robin Hood somewhere that exists. Right. And every version of it is different and has different dialogue and has different characters. And I do kind of feel like that's where this one is heading. And I'm, well, I was going to say I'm cool with that. But Mm -hmm. it is important for our listeners to know that my opinion as a fan of Wheel of Time doesn't really matter. I read the first book, and I don't remember almost any of it. Okay. In fact, after we got through episode one, I'm like, okay, that's the entirety of what I remember from the Wheel of Time series. There was a village full of people, Trollocs attacked it, and then they left. And so everything since then is completely new to me. Hmm. And we're recording this with four episodes released thus far. 
And my wife, who has never read any of the books, is 100% addicted to it. I am really enjoying it, especially once we hit episode three and suddenly Matt had a character. Mm. Took him a while to develop a personality. Perrin doesn't have one yet. I assume that's coming. So in the books, Matt doesn't get a personality till book three, really book four. Really? I'm joking, but... No, but that makes sense because Matt is very much the audience insert character in the same way that Harry Potter, Dorothy Gale... It you you want to see yourself reflected in him. Took a long time for Robert Jordan to really nail down who Matt was. And it's interesting because Matt is the character that was the hardest for me to get right. Like my Matt gets better through my three books, but my Matt is pretty off in the first book, The Gathering Storm, hmm. that I wrote. But yeah, so Matt is an interesting character for that reason. In the book, there are only two viewpoint characters. I think the entire first book. I have to go back and look. I guess you can. Is it you can't Moraine lose and Matt? No. Or? It is Rand for almost all of it until they split apart, and then it's Perrin and Rand. Oh, that's right. I believe. Now we might get some other viewpoints later on, yeah. but it is mostly the you know Rand book. And Rand gets a personality by episode three as well, which mm. was which was nice. I, I should say a non whiny personality. Episode two, his whining because it's very true to the books. Oh, well, and take your word for it. <laughs> yeah. I've told this story before. Sorry for those who've heard it before. But one of my favorite things about The Wheel of Time is that when I read them as a kid, I spent the whole time being like, man, I empathize so much with Rand. Moran keeps telling him what to do. And he doesn't have to do any of this stuff. And <laughs> why won't she just tell him what's going on and leave him alone? And she is. And then I read them as an adult and I had a different experience. I'm like, you stupid kid, listen to Moraine, okay? <laughs> you are going to get yourself killed so quickly if you do not listen to, have you not seen the stuff that she does? She's got it together. Listen to Moraine. And I had- Because I've read The Wheel of Time many times. Mm -hmm. And so I loved in episode two saying that. By the way, there'll be minor spoilers. We'll try not to give major spoilers. We'll do our best. Yeah, we're just going to talk about the experience of being an author (laughs) in the world of Hollywood is an interesting thing. Because nobody knows what to do with you. No one knows what to make of you. Except, in my case, Rafe, who absolutely knows what to, you know. he's, He's a writer. I get along really well with all the writers. And the showrunner is often a writer, mm-hmm. but well, and you know, this is maybe broader than just the topic mm-hmm. of let's talk about Wheel of Time. But you know, and I think I mentioned Castle at some point. Yeah, people have a very weird perception of what authors are like, mm-hmm. and Hollywood in particular has a very weird perception because what a Hollywood writer gets paid yeah. is leagues beyond what your typical novelist gets paid. Most people working even on like mid-list TV shows on some network that nobody watches are probably making as much or more per episode than I am making on a book deal. Okay. Which That's is really interesting that yeah. you would say that because it highlights our different experiences. Mm-hmm. My experience has been that in Hollywood, the writer is so low on the totem pole and paid very I won't say poorly because you get paid. Television and film are different is another thing we have to make clear. But in film, a lot of times the writer is not treated with the respect that I think a writer deserves. And in our world, we get treated with a lot of respect. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But the money is very different. The money is very different. So like if you are staff writer on a TV show, Mm -hmm. then yes, you're not making a ton. 
But if you are writer, if you wrote enough of the mm-hmm. script that you are listed in the credits as the writer for this episode, mm-hmm. then that is probably five figures. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I sold Ghost Station last year, that was ten thousand dollars. That's less than an episode of an average TV show. You know, most of my sales are a little more than that. But like Victoria Schwab, when mm-hmm. she and I don't know where her TV deal is right now, but one mm-hmm. of her books, they were working on a pilot for mm-hmm. it. And she actually worked into her contract that she got to write the first draft of the script, partly for the credit, mm-hmm. but mostly because that was a good like $60,000 of money because mm. that's what you get as the writer on a big show. For one episode, which is nuts. <laughs> and you're just like, ah, I get seven figure deals for all my books. This is chump change either way. Let's just say that the Writers Guild does a good job of watching out for writers' payments mm-hmm. in Hollywood. And I don't think it is overinflated. I bet they could be paid more. Yes. Well, and yeah. I do want to make that clear. I'm mm-hmm. not complaining that those writers yeah. get more. Mm-hmm. Then they should. I'm just saying that if that's what you're yeah. pulling down per episode, mm-hmm. then when you set out to write a show like Castle or yeah. a movie about a writer, your perception of what they make is going to be very skewed. But the respect that an author gets, a novelist mm-hmm. gets, is very different from the respect a Absolutely. writer gets in Hollywood, Absolutely. which is kind of this interesting thing. And that's why they don't quite know, like me. Wheel of Time, when I went to set, everyone was wonderful. They were just delightful. Cast, crew, everyone. But I got the sense that they didn't quite know what to make of me. Because not only am I a writer and a producer on the show, so how do you treat a producer? Which type of producer am I? Because there are producers in Hollywood that they get their producing credit because they introduced such and such to such such and such at a party and said, this deal gets made, I get a producer credit. And they said, yes. Mm -hmm. And that's all they've had to do with the production ever, right? And then there are also producers that if this person says we have to do this thing, poor Rafe is going to have to figure out how to make us do it. So let's make sure this person is happy so that they don't say do the thing and we get them out of here quickly before they ruin things. Yeah. And then there's producer of this person really knows their stuff. We're really glad that they're here. They might point out some stuff that is really useful to us. And then there's this producer is the CEO's daughter. And if she isn't treated well, then like producer means so many different things. And they're like, what is Brandon? We have no idea. He's not just the producer (laughs) and a writer, though. He's the other writer that got hired to write on the thing. And so Mm -hmm. what is his role? But at the same time. He is very famous in his field. Is he like an actor? The person that we have to treat like a, they they had no idea. They didn't know what to make of me. Mm -hmm. They never do in Hollywood. They don't. And it's very strange. Hey, so I'm curious. I want to get back to some of the adaptation questions. Yeah. Because I don't remember the books. Mm -hmm. In the series so far. Yeah. My favorite character by a mile is Nenave. Okay. She Mm -hmm. is so much fun to watch. She is incredibly entertaining and- One of my favorites also. Yeah. How true is she to the books? She is extraordinarily true to the books. She would say is, so here's the thing. I think all the characters in soul and personality 
are very true to the books. That's the thing okay. that Rafe has accomplished. Most of the scenes are different from the books, but they convey the same people with one major change. Their world is darker and their lives are harder. Okay. That's the biggest change. This is the influence of the grimdark movement. I wouldn't call Wheel of Time grimdark, but this is, you know, everyone's older. You can be meaner to them because of that. Yeah. So let's go ahead and say we're going to give some spoilers. We're going to delve into a little more spoiler. Definitely. Still, I mean, it's the early episode, so it doesn't spoil that much. But Mm -hmm. for instance, in the books, Matt Cawthon's dad is one of these delightful characters. He's kind of like Matt. He's a little bit of a wisecracker, but you see that he's the seasoned wisecracking guy who understands responsibility. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that would be one of the first people, if you could take someone on a quest, I'd pick Matt's dad because <laughs> he would keep you entertained, but he's not gonna be irresponsible. It's yeah. like, you get the sense he was really irresponsible when he was younger, and now he's learned how to be a responsible individual. In the movie, he is a lecherous womanizer who beats his family. Yeah. This is one of the ones that the fans are up in arms on. And I actually warned Rafe about this. I'm like, come on. You don't have to do this to Abel Coffin, do you? (laughs) He is the delight throughout the books. He has very bit parts. But when he shows up, you have a good time. Oh, so you see him again? Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, okay. Wheel of Time is very much, there are very few characters that don't show up later on. People you meet just in a, this is just one of the things Robert Jordan loved to do. Mm -hmm. People you hang out with for a scene come back later on. Probably not something that they're going to be able to do as much in a television show, but yeah. But even so, that does help explain, Mm -hmm. like if they're leaving that option open, Yeah, that helps explain episode one, which spent so much time on all these people in the yes. village. And the mm-hmm. whole time I was thinking, this is the one part of the book I remember, they're gonna leave this village so yeah. soon. I don't need to know any of these people, but if they come back, yeah. maybe I do. Yeah, so not to give too many spoilers, but all those people are relevant characters and many of them that you were talking appear in my books and oh, I got to write them. That is so banana. So yeah. By the way, uh, yeah. for the audience who's out there, you know, because I know that there are hardcore <laughs> Wheel of Time fans who are incensed mm-hmm. that you are having this conversation with the absolute chucklehead here who doesn't know the series. When Brandon signed for me my copy of The Gathering Storm, mm-hmm. he wrote, for Dan, who will never read this book. It is and a, it's a long journey. But regardless, you're experiencing now. This is part yeah. of why we love having adaptations. Exactly. Um, so everything's darker. Which I suspect is... More so than a grimdark thing, it's mm-hmm. a Game of Thrones TV show. Thing. Yeah, that's what I mean. Game of Thrones yeah. TV show is- Which is kind of a grimdark thing. It's a grimdark thing. thing. And like, you know, Egwene getting pushed off the cliff at the beginning. This is less grimdark and more, we need dynamic, interesting visual scenes to film. Mm-hmm. She's going to get pushed off a cliff into a river. I wrote it to Rafe. I'm like, why? <laughs> why, why are we pushing women off of cliffs as uh, part of their womanhood ceremony? Why? Because it looks good on camera. It looks good on camera. And he didn't actually say that. It's just like, well, you know, yeah. there's some things we need to adapt and things like that. And this felt like a good dramatic scene for our actors to do. And, you know, but yeah, that sort of stuff. And so, you know, Nynaeve, her life is a little darker, but mostly she's one of the ones in the books that it had been awful for already. Mm. And so it doesn't change. Like, you know, the big change in episode one is spoilers. Episode spoilers one. Spoilers for episode um, one. Perrin killing his wife. Perrin yeah. does not have a wife in the books, right? At this point in mm-hmm. the series. And so he kills his wife. 
It replaces a scene later in the first book where he kills some white cloaks with a bit of berserker rage. And it's a very controversial Which is change. what you were talking about with trying to capture the yeah. spirit of it, yeah. even if not the actual right. it's not scene by scene. Like This is the one change. So there are a lot of things I suggested, and I'm shocked they actually did. This is my okay. the most surreal part about all this is that I made a bunch of suggestions and Rafe listened to me. Because my experience, I don't know if your experience is this in Hollywood is, my experience is <laughs> I make a bunch of suggestions, they pat me on the head and ignore me, right? For the most part, that's what happened with me as well. Yeah. You know, it's kind of this, you don't know filmmaking, you don't mm-hmm. know the things we're doing, we've got our vision, yeah. pat you on the head. And I can understand that to an extent. Well, and one thing that I can look backwards on, mm-hmm. now having seen the final product and yeah. understanding script writing much better than I did mm-hmm. eight years ago. All the things where they ignored me, they were right to ignore me. Mm. And the places where they took my advice, they were right to take my advice. Interesting. So the biggest change, other than, I guess I should get back to my story. I read the first two episodes, Mm -hmm. and I sat there for a while, and I had to shift my view from, this is going to be a one-to-one adaptation, to, this is more like The Shining. Mm -hmm. I didn't go that far. I think it is more like The Lord of the Rings adaptations. I think Peter Jackson maybe was a smidge on this side more. I'm Mm -hmm. gesturing toward the side of the straight up adaptation versus the soul of it, but he's in the middle. He's like right down the center. And I think Wheel of Time is more like that than it is like- More of a recreation than it is a reimagining. Well, I think it's on the reimagining side, but it's really close to Lord of the the Rings. As not really close to The Shining. If you imagine 50-50 between these two, okay. it's close to the 50-50 line, just over the line into reimagining. Mm-hmm. But that took me a while. And I sat there with those scripts for a while and chatted with Rafe and eventually decided, you know what? I'm cool with this, right? Like some of my favorite adaptations did this. I just have to shift my brain. And Wheel of Time has this built-in mechanism for doing that. So it's my headcanon. It's called the Wheel of Time. And the mythology of the Wheel of Time is that these characters have all lived before and done this exact story before. Really? They've lived it, yeah. Um, Not just like in reincarnations, but... No, in reincarnations, same story but the same cycled. story gets cycled through. It's not 100%, but if you look in the books, there's, for instance, there are legends in our time. Mm-hmm. We think that the life we're living in America and things like this would be the first age, maybe the seventh age. Uh, and they're in the third age, right? And so in the Wheel of Time, they have the legends of John Glenn who flew to the moon in the belly of an eagle. They find a Mercedes symbol. They mm-hmm. talk about all these myths of America and Russia. There's even a thing about Dear Abby. Like the idea is that these things have been gone so long We're so far past these that they've become legend, right? Mm -hmm. But we have in our time the stories of Merlin, who is Tom Marilyn, Nynaeve, who's Nineveh, Moiraine, who is Morgan Le Fay. Fay. We're going to go to the Stone of Tyr, which has the sword in the stone. We have Arthur Pendragon. Like we have the whole Arthurian lore, which we have during our age has become myth. The mm-hmm. stories of all of Randalthor and Perrin, who's based off of Perun, the Slavic god, mm-hmm. the names of all of them and things like that. So the whole idea is they lived the whole thing through, and then we 
have legends of them, then they have legends of us by the time it gets back to them. And they don't live it one-to-one, but the same story happens with the same souls. So as this thing is endlessly Mm -hmm. cycling around, this isn't a retelling of the books you read. This is a retelling of one of the other cycles that is the same story as the books you read. That is my headcanon. Rafe, I don't think is allowed to call it his headcanon (laughs) in public, but that is like, and I even said to him, the first time we did a call on the the scripts, I said, this is my headcanon because the books have this built-in mechanism and that frees me and liberates me to just let you make the show you want to make and I'm going to try to help you make the best version of it that you're trying to make. Yeah. Which allows me, even on things like I didn't like Perrin's wife being mm-hmm. killed. I understood why he put that scene there. I mm-hmm. think it's actually a good scene. I think Perrin berserking during the Trolloc attack and killing somebody on accident or wounding someone is a really important scene. For you, if you're going to cut the White Cloaks thing that he just doesn't have time for. Yeah. It really establishes him straight out the gate, establishes his main conflict. Parents' mm-hmm. main conflict is creator destroyer through the books. And he's got this thing inside of him. He's scared to let it out. And I thought it was good, but I recommended don't make it a wife because the trauma of killing someone that close to you is going to make it hard for me to accept that he can even function going forward. And I just recommended it be his master blacksmith and that he wound them. Because once you've killed someone, then there's a line you've already crossed that a lot of through the book's parents' story is, will he cross this line or not? Mm -hmm. But he does kill those white cloaks in the first book with the berserker rage and things like that. So, But it lets me even accept this is the most controversial change to me. And I'm totally cool with it. I wouldn't have done it, mm-hmm. but I can be like, you know what? In this version of the turning of the wheel, this is just what happened to poor Perrin. He's got a <laughs> much rougher time of it. He's just got to um, deal with it. He's just got to deal with it. And I really liked how they filmed that scene. So. Yeah. The scene was cool. Mm-hmm. I did say earlier, uh, four episodes in, Perrin doesn't really have a character yet for me. His personality is mostly just, I'm so sad that I killed that girl I liked. So Perrin's really hard because in the books, Perrin's whole thing is, I am a big, strong dude. If I'm not really careful, I will hurt somebody. Mm -hmm. And so I have learned my entire life to think things through, and I generally just don't say my mind. So he is the big, strong, silent guy, but you're in his perspective for a good chunk of the books, and so you see it. He Mm. even learns, I won't say what they're going to do with this in the show, but he gets the power to smell people's emotions. Ooh. in the books cool which is all internal and so he can read people's emotions and mm-hmm. tell you what people are thinking it's really convenient for Perrin to be in his <laughs> viewpoint when you're writing him to be like oh yeah he could tell this person was simmering angry even though they weren't showing it it's really dynamic for writing a novel mm-hmm. in a visual medium him being able to smell people's emotions doesn't help you tell his story at all yeah well especially if he is so closed off yes If he's not the kind who's going to immediately capitalize on that information, Mm -hmm. then there's nothing to show. Yeah. And I mean, Perrin, I do want to say he does talk in the books. We're going to be in the things like he doesn't stay quiet all the time. I Mm -hmm. mean, but he is the quiet, silent type. Yeah. And characterizing that, he needs people to play off of to make him really work. And in the books, Egwene Perrin 
is the way that that happens. She pulls him out of his shell as they are isolated together from yeah. the rest of the group. And they meet with the Tuatha on and things like that. Like this is where Perrin starts to actually blossom. Before starts that, he was just up. the big quiet guy who followed everyone around. I do have a question about that, mm -hmm. but we'll let the new pages mm -hmm. come in. Just butt in and don't don't <laughs> wait for permission. Mm. Just el throw elbows. Take him out. <laughs> if she takes me out, <laughs> then, then I'll fill the time. I'll just make up some yeah. crap about Wheel of Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she takes me out, and then no more books get written. Well, I mean, she's not going to kill you. What do you okay. think take out means? Hurt him, but don't kill him. Okay. Mm -hmm. Here's my potentially snotty question. Okay? okay, go for it. Episode two. Yes. This is because you talked about how they're isolated, and they yes. are. They have this group of six people that leaves yeah. the town. Mm -hmm. And then eventually turns into seven people, but they all get separated when they go to the big city full yes. of scary monster shadows. Yes. Shadar Logoth. It seemed to me from the show, and I genuinely am not sure mm -hmm. if there is an important plot point that I am not understanding yeah. or a world building thing, or if it was just filmed weird. Everyone fled from the city. Mm -hmm. And... Like, is there a reason why they all ended up in, as far as I can tell, completely different biomes? Right. That didn't happen in the Like, is, is that city like the nexus of, of biomes. multiple different no. landforms? They get split up and there's really only two biomes. You've got the White Cloaks around and you've got Trollocs around. And so you end up, they're all going the same direction. In the books, it's more like Matt and Rand are on the road. Okay. Going village to village to village. Mm -hmm. And Perrin and Egwene end up in the wilderness by themselves, going through the forest, staying okay. away that way. But and headed so, in the same general headed direction. In the same general direction. Okay. And so, and we don't follow Moiraine. We don't know what happened to her in the books to the same extent because we're not in her viewpoint. Oh. Right. And so we get a lot of here's Perrin and Egwene, and here is Matt and Rand on the road. Okay, well, that is fascinating to learn because mm -hmm. the Moraine story with yes. Lan and Nineveh, is it Nineveh, Nineveh? I say Nineveh, but a lot of people say Nineveh. What do they say in the movie, in the show? Audiobooks, and I think the show yeah. match with Nineveh. 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 Yeah. So, okay, I'm not yeah. going to say that. All of, a lot weird. of that stuff, Nineveh. <laughs> you can say whatever you want. She's what, Ninue? There's an Arthurian legend. Nimue. Nimue. That he is, got is the, the Arthurian from. one. No, yeah. but that is the most interesting of the plot lines right now. Partly because I love Nynaeve mm -hmm. yes. so much, partly because, especially in episode four, when that other dude, the false dragon, shows up and yes. we get to meet all of the Aes Sedai and we learn more about them, mm -hmm. that's incredibly cool stuff. Yeah. At what point do we learn that? Or was so, that fake scenes made up so that we could no, this narrate is, what was going on? This is all in the books, but it's condensed. And you're seeing perspectives that you learn about afterward. Okay. But all this stuff, like he's moving up multiple Aes Sedai that are relevant to the story later on that mm -hmm. don't show up at this point in the books. It's just compressing, right? A lot of compressing going on. And a lot of it's really good. Like this is what you would need to do to adapt the Wheel of Time. And the stuff that's happening like with Nynaeve and Lan and the Aes Sedai and stuff, that is the bulk of what makes up the Wheel of Time the book series. Okay. But, and some of this is in the first book, don't get me wrong, but basically the Wheel of Time can be lumped into four eras. Mm. Yeah, here's my awesome. brand. This is what I love. Brandon, era one is books one through three, which are quest fantasies in the traditional Tolkien-esque sense. Okay. Number one, run away from the scary monsters. Number two, chase down this thing that someone stole. Number three, 
we've got to chase down a certain member of our group who might be going crazy because they are now channeling the one power and have decided to leave us all behind. Okay. So three chase narratives, mm -hmm. essentially, for the bulk of the books. And then book four becomes something completely different. Book four is where it becomes a world-building political intrigue epic. Mm. Book four becomes Dune. And it is most people's favorite book in the series mm -hmm. because book four is heavily influenced by Dune and it leans into a lot of those same ideas, but done in the Wheel of Time way. And the world expands and it becomes a political intrigue series instead of a quest fantasy series. It's about the same time that Game of Thrones came out. Surprise. And so kind of Jordan was channeling that same thing. So mm -hmm. books four, five, and six are world building political intrigue epics in the vein of Dune or Game of Thrones. Okay. And then it starts to transition again into, I don't want to say for sure, because I wasn't in Robert Jordan's head, but the, I might be a little bit tired of the main storyline. Let's explore the lives of a lot of different characters in this world going in different directions and start new interesting stories with them. Okay. Some characters' parents become main characters. Mm -hmm. Characters like Aes Sedai that had bit parts become main characters. And so a big kind of expansion of the world. Explore expansion other of facets of it. In particular. Yeah. Very big expansion of the cast, which culminates in the 10th book, which a lot of those work really well. The 10th one is the least popular in the whole series. Okay. 10th book is generally people's least favorite because it is a parallel novel where the cast got too big, and so he had to split two books in half and show everyone's favorite characters in book nine. And then book 10 is the same time period with a whole bunch more characters. Okay. And people generally didn't like that one as mm -hmm. much. Book 11 starts the wrap-up. That was his last one. And that's the last era of the Wheel of Time books, which is the, we're going to kind of go back to books four through six and refocus on the main characters and the world-building epic and the kind of plot line of the main characters. And my mm -hmm. three are in that. Yeah, well, you did what, 12, 13, 14? Yeah. So basically what Rafe is doing here is he's saying, okay, the bulk of the time of the Wheel of Time and people, a lot of people's favorite parts take place in this world-building political intrigue era. That's what the Wheel of Time really is at its soul. So I'm going to accelerate some of those plots and put them in season one and expand some of the things that were going on behind the scenes that we know happened, we're going to show them on screen mm -hmm. and we're going to kind of compress a lot of that to give you that same feel so that it has a smoother transition away from quest yeah. fantasy into political intrigue epic. Yeah, which seems like a very good decision. It to was make. a great decision. Yeah. Most of his decisions I wholeheartedly support. Once I got into my head, this isn't going to be a scene by scene. Then this in particular, I'm like, this is great. Like my favorite episodes of the whole season are four, five, and six, I think. Six being my favorite. Okay. Four and, was awesome. Yeah. So. And they lean into these ideas quite a bit. And his cast is really good. And Moiraine and Lan in particular are really good. Yeah. And so giving more screen time to Moiraine is not something I'll ever complain about. I really like Moiraine. In fact, there's a character later in the series who ends up doing a lot of the same stuff Moiraine would do. And I still, to this day, she's my least favorite character because I'm like, you're not my real mom. I only want to read about Moiraine. You are just a fake version of Moiraine. Yeah. Go away. Well, and getting Rosamund Pike yeah. for the show was huge because mm -hmm. she is killing it. She is great. She is doing an absolutely wonderful job of being, you know, the Gandalf. But I like the whole cast. The whole um, cast is very good. Mm -hmm. Egwene mm -hmm. is great. 
And Dawn and I watched it and we were just killing ourselves trying to figure out where we knew her from. She's the weird friend from the live action Dora the Explorer. Have you seen the live action Dora the Explorer? I have not. It is so good. Like, and I know that look. Wait, wait. That's the look that everybody has. It is incredibly funny. I love the live action Dora the Explorer. And what kind the of green funny? is in it. What kind of funny? Like you're actually laughing with the movie about yes. the jokes that they wanted. To yes. Make. Okay. Because okay. the basic premise of it is that Dora has grown up in the jungle talking mm-hmm. to animals. And then she gets sent to Los Angeles for a real education in high school. And so first of all, they've aged her up a little bit. Mm-hmm. She's like 15 or 16 instead of a little kid. And she has no concept of how the real world functions and she still acts as if she's in a cartoon okay. and it is so funny i love okay. it anyway Egwene's in that you'll have to get us to watch that sometime I in will. the theater yeah the other character that i loved is the red Aes Sedai. okay whose leandrin. name i don't leandrin leandrin and her i did recognize mm-hmm. because she's lady macbeth in the patrick stewart macbeth oh, okay. which my daughter and i actually just watched a couple weeks ago and so we recognized her instantly. She's so good at being likable and evil at the same time. The biggest disparity between a character from the books, how much I like them, and the character in the show and in the scripts you haven't gotten to, the biggest disparity is Leandrin. Really? Their Leandrin is so good. And she's fine in the books. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But she's definitely not a big factor in these early books. I mean, she does appear in book one, technically, and she does some stuff. But you don't really start paying a lot of attention to Leandrin until later on. And the way she is written, she's great. I really like their Leandrin. Yeah. Who's the green Aes Sedai? It's probably Alana. Is she's- it not Alana? I can't remember which one they slot into that role. I don't remember. It's not Alana. I don't then. remember. Okay. I can't recall most of their names. Oh, it's not. It can't be Alana. No, because I know what they're doing later on. Who is it? Anyway, anyway is that character sticking around for a while? Because she was a lot of fun. I will not. You were say, not going to tell. I will me not fine. say whether that character sticks around or not. But yeah. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, even the kind of the four mooks from the village, mm-hmm. kind of the. There are, there are four Frodo's. They've all been, like I said, once they get into their roles, I'm still waiting for Perrin to, to wake up. But they're all interesting and mm-hmm. they're fun to watch. So Book two is it. really the Perrin book. I mean, there's multiple Perrin books. But book two mm-hmm. is where you're like, oh, wow, Perrin's really interesting. There's some in book one, but it's book two where that really happens. So. so and then book four for Matt. This might be a question that mm-hmm. you cannot or do not want to answer. Mm-hmm. Do you know what their plan is? Are they doing like one book per season? I think- Modified with some of this extra stuff we're talking about? I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say here, but I think it would be unreasonable to expect 14 seasons out of a television show. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And so I think it would be unwise to plan for 14 seasons. Mm-hmm. And to instead plan on condensing material to combine books into seasons. Very good. Very diplomatically said. I think that would be a very wise decision. <laughs> and indeed, most conversations I've been in long before Rafe was involved, mm-hmm. that was one of the things everyone talked about. Okay. Is this probably can't be 14 movies or 14 seasons. Where is a chance for us to accelerate some of this and condense some of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, you know, just brings me back to my original point of I don't want 
the hardcore fans to turn their noses up at this because it has failed to pass a purity test. Mm -hmm. You know, I want people who love these books to be able to love the series for what it is rather mm -hmm. than hate it for what it isn't. Yeah. We are, you know, kind of blinded in some ways by something like Spider-Man. How many Spider-Man reboots have we seen? Yeah. But most things never get that chance. Game of Thrones likely will never get another series or movies or right. anything. I mean, they'll I get a prequel or something like that. And they're already neither. working on a prequel, but the books, we're never going to get a different adaptation of those books. Mm -hmm. Once something gets adapted once, that's all you get. And if it does turn up again, like if there's another string of Harry Potter movies 50 years from now, that's 50 years from now. Some of us might not even be around. And so like, this is your shot. Guys, love it for what it is rather than... Yeah. You don't have to sad. love things you don't like, mm -hmm. but also don't get hung up on... Like, I believe strongly that an adaptation is a new piece of art, even one yeah. that is sticking close to it. Mm -hmm. Let the new piece of art be the new piece of art because it doesn't change the books. Yes. You can always go read the books again, and people who love the show can go read the books and get something new from them. And when I have been working on the adaptation of Mistborn, this has been one of my kind of primary things. Don't mm -hmm. be enslaved by what I wrote myself in the book when I write a screenplay and adaptation treatment stuff. Do what is best to tell this story on the screen yeah. so that if the series is really popular, that lends more immortality to the books. And so, yeah. Well, and that might be the really upbeat note to end mm -hmm. this on. My wife, who is not a nerd, yeah, I mean, not a fantasy nerd, she wants to read the books now. Mm -hmm. She likes the series so much that she wants to pick up the books and start reading those. And so- if this is something that brings in more fans and introduces Robert Jordan to more people, then I am happy to call it a success. Well, and let's not paint this as it's this really terrible adaptation that is we have to suffer because it'll bring more people in. It is legitimately oh, good. No. Yeah. yeah. I hope that people have listened to us rave about it for 50 yeah. minutes and, like, and understand that we both really like it. People say the same thing about the Aragon film. Christopher will be like, well, it introduced the world in the books to a new audience. And that's the positive thing he'll say about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're saying here. We're not giving a backhanded compliment. It is legitimately a good adaptation. I would agree with you. Don't get hung up on the fact that it is not the style of adaptation that you might have wanted. I was willing to let this go. It wasn't that hard, but I did give it some thought. And at the end of it, I am very glad that I did because it lets me enjoy this thing for what it is. Yeah. How's that, Ben? Ben.